Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello and welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 111, covering Glenn Cook's The Black Company. And with me today is one of the Taken, Hoy. Carpetbagger. That's my Taken name. (laughs) Carpetbagger, yes. (laughs) Also joining us today is a teacher at the Center for Cartoon Studies, the creator of the Jar of Fools and Berlin comic series, and the artist and creator behind the Dungeon World supplements The Perilous Wilds, Freebooters on the Frontier, A Book of Beasts, and many others, we are thrilled to have with us today, Jason Lutz. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Hoy. Hey, Jason. So great to meet you. As, as we were talking before, I'm totally geeking out on <laughs> meeting someone who helped me through my sort of post-college malaise, but apparently that was your post-college malaise as well. Yeah, so. yeah no, it was just, it was just autobiographical. That's all it was. <laughs> uh, by which I'm specifically referring to the Jar of Fools comic series. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, Jason, uh, we're going to go ahead and ask you that cliche RPG podcast question. How did you get into gaming? Uh, yeah, I had to think about this a little because I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought until I, you know, until I was going to come on. Um, it was OD&D White Box in 1978, I think. I think I was like 11 years old. Wow, that's um, great. Yeah, it was pretty, it was one of those, you know, like I think for a lot of people, especially in that era, it was like a transformative experience to encounter this invention that, like, allowed you to use your imagination to just go crazy with your friends. That was um, super inspiring. And around that same time, it was like some friends of mine in fifth grade were... Um, somebody's older brother had like all the judges guild stuff. So that was like a big part of, of, um, my experience then. And of course, you know, then like the, the white box is like practically indecipherable, the rules like, yes, I was just about to ask you about that. (laughs) If you guys were actually able to figure out how this game was supposed to be played at the time, you know, like thousands of little play groups all over the country, we found out our own way of playing D and D at the time. Right. Um, and who knows, you know, I can't even remember it now, but we managed to do it. I remember playing, but I don't remember much uh, you know about the actual rules we ended up using but in any case it was a great catalyst for for all that and then i played um uh let me think a little later than that um got into um like ad and i guess this would be in the 80s got into ad and and pretty much everything else that was coming out at the time like top secret in boot hill and call oh, yeah. Cthulhu and uh, you know anything i could get my hands on i was so excited by all that stuff um played games pretty much through high school and then like a lot of people when i went off to college you know along with comics which was my other big passion like put aside quote-unquote childish things and decided to go get real about life and then i think about a year into art school i realized comics was definitely a thing i wanted to keep doing so i went back to that but did not get back into gaming until in any serious way until probably i was in my late 30s so I had that classic gap that a lot of people of my generation mm-hmm. have. Um, and then when I came back, it was like my students wanted to know how role-playing games worked. And so I was like, okay, you guys, I'll, I'll we'll run like against the Hill Giants or whatever that module is called. We'll play some classic D&D. Yeah. 
And that led to a Pathfinder campaign, which was a total nightmare. I hated it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like my worst. It was like, why am I? There's a rule for everything. And like, yeah. if you feel like you can't find the rule, then you feel like you're doing it wrong. Um, and then luckily in like 2012, I guess it was, I got the one, two, three punch of DCC RPG, um, Dungeon World and Fiasco. I kind of found all those things around the same time and that kind of blew it back open. And then it was like, I, RPGs had totally been a very, very minor, small thing for me. And then I was all in at that point. It just was totally inspiring and um, have not stopped. I've been playing weekly once or twice a week ever since that. Right. Now, DCC RPG has a had and still has to some degree a very vibrant third party zine community. Mm. And I know Dungeon World also has one. It's maybe not quite as um, as as big as the DCC one. And I know that you're making supplements for Dungeon World. I'm curious what led you to to decide to make materials for Dungeon World specifically. I think it was like, so we played DCC and I was like, oh my God, this is what it used to feel like, right? This is what it used to feel like when I was 11 years old, like over the top and like funky and weird and idiosyncratic and um, not streamlined and not trying to be balanced. And um, so that was super inspiring. And then at the same time I was playing Dungeon World, which was also conjured up that feeling, but in the more kind of, had more of a kind of open play, more heavily improv, right? Less prepared modules and more kind of making it up as you went. And um and there was at that, even when I was getting into it, the DCC zine scene had sort of had sort of started up. But I think, so I read that combination of things and then I was like, oh, but I want something in between these two. I don't want, I didn't like, I, like Dungeon World was not getting enough of that early stuff that I wanted and DCC mm-hmm. was a little too broke for me. Like in uh-huh. terms of like writing a spell table is a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> if you, for sure. If, Absolutely. If you want to go custom in DCC, it takes some serious effort. So yeah. I wanted something that was kind of in between those two poles. So I created my own fantasy heartbreaker called um, Freebooters on the Frontier and then um, started creating stuff for that. Um, so it was very small. Um, it was actually a kick. It was like a stretch goal for this book, The Perilous Wilds, that I put out, which was a Dungeon World supplement. Um, and I think that the reason that Dungeon World was the initial draw for publishing stuff was that uh, it was just a lot easier to write. You know, it was just a lot easier to throw stuff together, the open nature of it meant that you could, um, uh, the kind of, the the fruitful void was kind of built into it in a way that made it more appealing. So I, there was like a 48-hour span where I wrote a whole module for Dungeon World, got super into it. It was called Servants of the Cinder Queen. And then from there, I just kind of like kept kind of spinning stuff out. And I love that you've got Peter Mullen doing the art for oh Freebooters on the Frontier. Because, I mean, not only is he an incredible artist, he's also just, like, such a nice dude. Yeah, he's so he's such a sweetheart. Um, and the thing about his art was, like, that that his he has such a, um, you know, he's, you can tell when somebody's, like, riding on the coattails or, or, or building their art style on what has come before, right? Mm-hmm. Like, especially in the world of fantasy art, which has become so generic and kind mm-hmm. of... Um, you know, thanks World of Warcraft for like totally yeah. genericizing the appearance of and Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering, right? So one of the things that the Peter's work just stood out so strongly because it had that same quality that the old school art did, where people were just like it was like carving something fresh out of, you know, maybe they were doing like a Kirby ripoff, but like they were also not a skilled artist, so they were just making something that felt totally new and weird. And Peter's stuff—he's an incredibly skilled artist, but yes, it has that quality to it. it that feels borderline so outsider art, especially yeah, in the original yes. white box. And and how does uh, you know now that you've you've had you know 
very serious formal training, did that sort of affect your ability to look at some of the stuff for a while? And, and then you sort of have to like sort of turn off that part of your brain a little bit to get back to that feeling that, you know. I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever, thankfully, going away to art school didn't, if anything, it gave me a greater appreciation for the people who quote unquote don't have the training, right? Like because of that more pure connection to expression, you're not like learning particular techniques. And you know, I remember there was Chris Van Allsburg who does, you know, who does picture books like Polar Express. Mm-hmm. He taught a class at RISD and it was all about learning his style, this really particular kind of way of drawing. And so that experience, that kind of thing made me appreciate all the more of these guys who were just like, oh, here's here's the movie poster for Empire Strikes Back. I'm just going to redraw that with fantasy characters <laughs> crudely. <laughs> and that has this amazing, I don't know, there's just like a wonderful, right. yeah, art, outside art is a great, a great right. way and to you, describe it. And you have that sort of funny commentary that in Berlin with the Mar- Mar- Martha, is it Martha Muller? The, yeah. The, sort of the, the initial viewpoint character and her experience in art school also. <laughs> right, yes, that. that was very much based on my own experience. In art yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what has been your history with reading speculative fiction? Um, let's see. I was thinking, I think in the fourth grade, I read The Hobbit and um, the Chronicles of Narnia books. I remember around that time, I was also reading these books by, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember. The, it was the series about these, they're called like tripods or something like that. Oh, John Christopher. Yes, John Christopher. Yeah, oh, so tripods. did you read those? Yes, I did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Amazing. C- city of like, city of gold, fire and gold, something city, like that. Right. Like yeah. the white mountains. Yeah. There's a, there was like four books in the series. I need to go back and read those cause I haven't looked at them since then, but those, and then the darkest rising series by Susan mm-hmm. Cooper was really big. Um, and then, um, later on, uh, so that was, I don't think I, I, th- I didn't read wizard of Earthsea till I was a teenager, but that was huge. Um, because it was so sparely written, right? Like yeah. it was not, it was not like so florid and purpley, purple prosy. It was just so, so specific and beautifully written. That kind of blew my mind. Um, uh, I think like junior high-ish, I some, found some Conan stories. So of course this is all interconnected with the gaming stuff. And I can't even, I know that I read the Appendix N in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And I, th- I know for sure off of that, I read some Fritz Lieber or oh, Liber. Cool. How do you pronounce his last name? I know Liber. Liber, okay. Yeah. I knew I read some Fritz Liber from that. Um, <clears throat> I read these Richard Blade stories. You know those about this MI6 operative who every every episode goes to a different alternative dimension. Um, all It was like written by a committee and um, just trashy. I think there were like 40 or 50 books in this series. <laughs> and it was all about getting like explicit sex in there for teenage cishet white boys right like right. um and that's why i read them because it was for uh, that um right, sure. right. it's like the long arm western series that was like the same same same, same, realm. same deal yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> i read um a big one i should say because i'm a cartoonist really big in high school was uh heavy metal magazine um yeah there's the partly because of the exposure to european artists and stuff and again there was the sex part like that was a big reason to read that magazine because it had you know there was nudity and whatnot, but, um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of those, uh, there was like some Richard Corbin sword and sorcery stuff in that magazine. Um, uh, and a lot of other, there's like, you know, there, I think there were some Lovecraft adaptations and some other stuff in there, but it, heavy metal was really big in, mm. for me in high school. And then yeah, I did especially actually, as like a fan of fantasy, a fan of naked ladies <laughs> and a fan of comics, right, like right. all of those things are coming together into one thing for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was huge getting, you know, buying them um, uh, at the Seven Eleven or whatever was not, 
uh, I was too shy to do that. I mean, it says adults only, I think, on the cover. So I don't think maybe they wouldn't even let me. But there was a comic shop in the town where I lived in California where it was just like one of those indoor malls where it's basically a series of office cubicles in some big building. It's like a depressing indoor mall. But there was this guy who ran up a little comic shop with his long boxes there and he had all the heavy metals. So I would go, I would go buy him there and he would sort of say like your parents, you know, I shouldn't do this because your parents wouldn't like it. And then he'd tell me the, (laughs) (laughs) he was doing his due diligence. (laughs) Wink, wink. And then I didn't read Lord of the Rings itself until actually I was in my twenties, I think. And I think, and I read it out loud with my then girlfriend, now wife, which was an awesome Uh experience to read that book out loud. Um, and I'm actually now reading it out loud to my son, which is really fun. That's so cool. So if you are going to recommend our listeners to read something for inspiration for their gaming, what, what are you recommending? Oh, I love going back. Which, so one of the things that your po- this podcast has been so inspiring and fun for me is to go back to those early, those pre, you know, before the fantasy section of the bookstore existed, Mm-hmm. finding those earlier examples of of speculative fiction that um and then in them finding the germs of what has become fantasy role playing and then looking at everything else there like what else was that author doing or what other cool things were they drawing attention to so i love stuff like um uh the well at the world's end by i think it's william morris, william morris. yeah yep. princess and the goblin by george mcdonald um those are two really early ones the um uh once a future king was big for me Um, but going even further back i think two really big ones are the kalivala which is the finnish epic poem um which actually was a big inspiration for tolkien and the uh, 1001 nights those two for me those are great inspiration because you can just dip into them you can like open to a random page and they're so full of crazy details and rich stuff that like it's just a great way to find just basically random inspiration for for stuff that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first exposure to Finnish mythology was actually from the Deities and Demigods. I think it was Jim, Jim Rosloff did all the illustrations in that chapter. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I had read a lot of uh, Swedish stuff because my second grade teacher was Swedish. So she would bring in the Dolaires Troll and Dolaires oh, yeah, Norse yeah, Gods yeah. books, which were amazing. They are oh, yeah. I love those books. But yeah, and the, the two, uh, the first two you mentioned, George MacDonald and um, the William Morris, Morris, I think yeah. both, both part of the Valentine Adult Fantasy series, I believe, too. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're all stewing in the same. <laughs> yeah, partly thanks to you guys. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. the nerding out goes in the opposite direction because um, mm-hmm. listening to you guys has inspired me to go back and read a lot of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Dunsany. Like, mm-hmm. had not oh, read yeah. any Dunsany until you, you guys started talking about it. And oh my God. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, so yeah. good. Incri- what a crazy genius that guy was. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're going to take a look at which edition of the book we're working with. I've got a pretty boring one. I'm working with the ebook Omnibus, The Chronicles of the Black Company. It's got the Raymond Swanland cover where um, we've got uh, the lady who's like glowing in white, like some uh, anime <laughs> princess. Uh, and in the front, it's either Raven or um, what? I, he would have got him Choker. What's his name? Croker. 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 Yeah. Croker. It's either Raven or Croker in the front looking real like badass and sinister and serious. <laughs> Where are you working with, Hoy? Uh, I'm reading with the same ebook, but I also have my college copy. Oh, yeah. With the Keith Burdak cover. 
And I was mentioning to the uh, book club, that apparently there's a little bit of story about how this cover actually ended up on the book. Oh, I would love to hear it. Because... Uh, so <laughs> apparently, I don't know if Glenn, Glenn Cook knew Keith Burdak personally. He did. Um, but he, he yeah, did. So he had yeah. a mock-up of this cover. Okay. Or, or an early sketch on his cover. And he was there with the publisher and the art director was like, there's no way I'm using that cover. Absolutely no way. And apparently, uh, we don't know if this was a plant or not, but a book buyer from Major Chain walked by while they were in this meeting and saw the cover and said, I will buy 50,000 copies of whatever that book is if it has that cover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it the pentagram that does it? Is it the, what's the... You know, but apparently, so Burdak ended up illustrating the first six books in the series. So, you know, yeah, wow. <laughs> um, but Burdak, yeah, I, he went on to do, he works for like Origin doing video game covers for like Wing Commander and stuff. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, so cool. There you go. Um, and the thing about this cover that drives me bonkers, which it does for many fantasy covers, is how, like, you know, it doesn't line up with your image of that character, right? Yes. Like, right. like that helmet is not a Marion or have you pronounce that. Right. <laughs> this looks like Baron Karza in drag, which is not <laughs> a bad idea. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but it's the cover that grabs you, but then it ends up yeah. not being the thing in the book. Exactly. Right. Not exactly, exactly the thing yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, what are you working with? Uh, same as Hoy. I got yeah. the... I got oh, the, cool. Yeah, yeah. I got the uh, 84 edition there. And it's a well-loved copy well, actually, I just got it. Just came through Abe Books like last week. This is just all my Post-it notes from reading for this for this episode. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. All right, and Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day? Uh, we do. In fact, uh, you just said it, which is uh, it's apparently Morian, and okay. I've been mispronouncing it the same way for uh, the last uh, thirty-five years. <laughs> but it's basically the helmet that we associate with the Spanish conquistadors. Um, so that's the, that's a Morian. It's not actually the mask part. But also, Rick Byrne had a good word. To, in honor of today, we're recording on the last day of Hanukkah. It's kibitzing, which is to offer unwelcome advice, especially during a game of cards. <laughs> nice. So kibitz is in there. Gosh, I missed that one. It appears once, but then, but they play so many games of cards. Um, and then, actually, he brought up something very interesting. And Wait, but, but you said kibitzing. Isn't it kibitzing? Kibitzing. I could be. Okay. Well, is all, it, or... all the rabbis will come down and smack me on the head. So. <laughs> I don't know if it's kibitz or kibitz. Yeah. Is yeah, it kibitz or kibitz? Well, let me see if I can get the, uh, let's see if you can pull it up. I think up it's on. kibitzing. All right. Um, anyway, I've mispronounced <laughs> the other word for 35 years, so I can mispronounce this one for exactly. this Exactly. This might turn into a, one of those uh, geese, gayest, gesh. <laughs> but, uh, Battles so Rick, to the death. <laughs> so Rick mentioned, and I did not have quite time to go down this rabbit hole, but he mentioned that a lot of people have pointed out um, the Judaic roots of Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and I didn't know anything about it, but just on a very quick search, I found a tablet article uh, about... Um, it says, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, a nerd, it's basically a nerdier spin on Judaism. <laughs> so it's very uh, Talmudic and, and rabbinical. People argue about interpretations and, and what comes to the exact oh, interpretations sure, 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 of right? sure, obscure right. texts. And specifically, I think that really ties into, I was going to ask you, Jason, because so much of your work is in, informed, even if it's in, you know secular Jewish characters. I mean, Berlin, you have any number of characters. Jar of Fools is specifically a reference to uh uh, what some Hanukkah elements too, right? And the the title, right? Is that uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So somewhat random, but yes, it is based on the story the stories of the city of the town of Helm, which is a town of fools. Um, mm -hmm. In certain stories, I should say I'm not Jewish. I'm total goy, um, <laughs> but I'm uh, uh, I kind of want to be in some ways. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic <laughs> to the cause, and 
Um, yeah, but that's totally fascinating. I can totally see how uh, varying interpretations, especially of right the, or the earliest uh, the tablets that came down from Mount Geneva, from Lake Geneva, <laughs> like how they. <laughs> you know, Mariah Morian. Morian is that how you pronounce it? Morian is currently yes. So if you look up, right, it's got the we all know what a conquistador helmet looks like, right? Mm. But if you but but the thing that had in my head was the um the old gladiator, the Thracian helmet. All oh, right, with the mask, the mesh with the mask. mask. So it has that conquistador thing, but it's got that grill over the face, and that yeah. was kind of what I was picturing for um soul catcher for soul catcher. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. So now we can head on over to the library. Jason, what did you think of the Black Company? I enjoyed it. I um, Overall, I would say my impression was positive. I had heard about it over the years and never read it until this opportunity, which was great. Um, my son asked me this morning, I was doing the dishes, and he's like, so that book you read, Dad, that you're going to talk about on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> Which I hate doing about anything, but I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, six, <laughs> and he's like, oh, so it wasn't very good, and I was like, no, that's worth reading. If it's over a five, it's worth reading, right? But like my, you know, my ten is like, I don't even know if a ten exists, but you know, I got, I got some, I got some standards there. I found it very, uh, very readable. Um, which is a tor- terrible adjective to use, but like um, I, I did want to keep, I wanted to know what was going to happen next, right? I got yeah. invested. He does a great job of setting you right out of the gate with like that whole first couple of pages is really vivid and rich and like, oh, yeah. suggests stuff that you're like, what's going on here? Um, the earlier parts reminded me a lot of, um, did you guys just do Shadow of the Torturer? just recently we did yeah so there's a little bit of gene wolf's kind of um what do you i would call it i've heard it referred to as intense first person where you don't he doesn't there's no exposition it's just like we're there we're in croker's head he's describing everything as if we kind of know what he's talking about he doesn't spend a lot of time telling you the whys and wherefores or any background detail and i like that because it trusts the reader to figure stuff out. And of course, Gene Wolf goes really far in that direction to the point of unreliable narrators and, and stuff. So big picture, I found it. Yeah, I was, I was, I enjoyed it and um, had, for me, it had a pretty satisfying, like the overall arc and where it ends up. Um, I was pretty, um, uh, uh, I was into it. Well, I'll start by saying I'm somebody who I, I my, my brain tends to be pretty numerically focused and I do actually enjoy rating things. So um, I every book that we read, I rate on Goodreads. So I gave it a four out of five on Goodreads. <laughs> nice, nice. But also a thing that I do that I don't know if I've talked about this before on the show, but every time that I read a new book as a part of this project, I insert it into the list of all the books that we've read in order of which one I like from the most to the least. So we've we've currently read 111 books. Wow! And this book um, landed at my 46th favorite of those 111. <laughs> <laughs> um, it fell right in between Philip Jose Farmer's "Behind the Walls of Terra," uh, right below that, and right above the Andrew J. Offit collection "Swords Against Darkness." Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> so there's a very specific answer to the, what did you think of it? Yeah. Since you're talking about your son asking on a scale of one to 10, because that feels very much like the thing I would have been asking. And out of 111, that gives that means it's a four. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> Out of your list, it's a four, right? Exactly. Yeah. Although yeah. this list is skewed, though, because 
this is a list of predominantly things that I really enjoy. Right, Although right. there are some real clunkers in there. <laughs> it's mostly a list of real good stuff. Yeah. Right, right. So how about you, Hoy? I like this book. I mean, this book, I like this book enough to read the entire series, which is, I think, is 11 books. And this is the second or third time I've, I've read it. Um, so, and it was an important book for me back in high school, I think. And, um, but it's interesting reading back now because there's been so much grim, dark fiction out there. And thinking that a lot of people have taken the wrong lessons from this book. Mm. Um, and because a lot of people are doing grim, dark for the sake of green, grim, dark. And I think this is absolutely not that mm. this is, mm-hmm. this is about, this could only have been written with any real sincerity in the post immediate post Vietnam war era. Yeah. You know, to write it, you know, the, all the grim dark now doesn't seem rooted in anything. This is rooted in the very much, we were talking about Malays before this, the post Vietnam earlier, early Reagan era Malays. Um, Glenn cook did serve, although I don't think he was, he never saw any combat, but he was in the served during the Vietnam war era and knew for 10 years, I think in the Navy and was attached to the Marines for a while. So, um, I was talking, talking to, again, our guest Rick Byrne had served in the British Army for six years. And I had mentioned, is this a book? This book is known to be a favorite of people who have served. Um, and he was saying, yes, and he totally could see why. It was very authentic to that experience and how 90% of it was just waiting around playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not knowing what's going on you know and like and like why are we doing this like nobody's even doing? asking that question right they're just yeah. like there are these forces totally beyond everybody's control who are deciding what's happening maybe the captain knows what's up but we're just doing what we're told and we have well, each, they're we doing have it because other. they've been hired to do it then right. that's what yeah. they do they yeah. don't morality doesn't come into it right. it's like yeah. oh we've been hired by the bad guys all right i guess we're bad guys right now yeah yeah and so i think what a lot of grimdark has taken is they've just taken like the the coolness of a morality, whereas this book is all of that, but it ultimately builds to even in the end of this book, them realizing that even though they're still serving evil, that there's other evils that are worse, and that mm. and that they eventually come to maybe not a full fledged moral awakening, but a moral reckoning over the course of this series. They do, okay, yeah. Yeah. cool. That's yeah. good to hear. Uh, but it gets equally dark before then, you know. So. <laughs> and I'll share a. Um, a bit of feedback that I had that I shared in the patron book club, which is that I kind of see this as the bridge between uh, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. And when it comes to the the first side of the bridge, the Lord of the Rings, I feel like, especially in the the moment I kind of had this like aha moment while reading it was when the war elephants were introduced Mm. and it got me thinking about the only fonts and the Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how in the Lord of the Rings, you have this like big evil army. We don't know who these people are. We don't understand what their story is or what their, what their whole deal is. And part of me is like, I wonder if Glenn Cook, Glenn Cook had been reading these and was like, who are these people? I want to write a novel about these folks because we know nothing about them. So here we have this novel of this, like, like, Many like this one to three thousand man army that's been hired by evil folks to go out and fight some evil wars, and then I was imagining George R. R. Martin reading these when he was younger, and it feels very Game of Thrones in the sense that like we've got the whole grim dark thing going on, and it's very much like it's a man's world in the Black Company. Um, and because it's like it's like a dirty, dangerous man's world where like there's lots of rape and just in general, it's like it's rape, it's murder, it's might equals right. Um, but also we have these these characters on the fringes, um, especially on the other side for the most part. Like we've got Whisper, 
who is this like female leader of the rebellion who we don't really see in the story, like hardly at all. And we also have Darling, who's this nine-year-old girl who was being gang-raped when she was saved by Raven, um, and she's deaf. And it turns out like she is like is immune to magic, I think. And she's like some prophesized person who's gonna bring this whole thing tumbling down. And part of me wondered if George R. R. Martin was reading this and was like, this is cool, but what if we really stuck with these like the female characters and like the characters who were like 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 um who were like we've got the Tyrion Lannister here, we've got a deaf girl. Um, George R. R. Martin really wanted to kind of stick with like the the more disenfranchised characters in this kind of like dark world of rape and might. But Hoy actually had a really good counter to that that I would love for you to bring up. Right. Um, I think that uh, as far as you mentioned, the gender part of it is absolutely correct, or at least as far as first-person viewpoint characters. Although as the series proceeds, you see more from the lady's point of view, uh, the White Rose, other characters. In fact, there's a couple of women who become captains of the Black Company later on in the second second series. But... Uh, the Game of Thrones series, even though it deals with people who are uh, maybe physically have physical disabilities, they're women or whatever, they're still people who are from the nobility. And it's never the people who are from the, the peasant's eye point of view, the enlisted soldier's point of view. Um, yeah. the people who are <laughs> It's actually, always Arya. It's never pork pie. Right. Um, and in this case, we do see sort of ultimately what happens to civilians in war uh, through the course of the Black Company series. Um, and it's and so it's not always the person who's doing the perpetration of the stuff, and so yeah, that was I think, and I think Glenn Cook was smart to do that, but maybe not do it at the very beginning of the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was the the hardest part for me was the 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 realistic. You know, if you're going to have a mercenary company in a believable medieval setting, you're going to have some of the worst aspects of what that means, right? And yes. that was just the hardest part for me personally, like getting to that moment where you first meet Darling was just like, whoa, what? Because <laughs> it wasn't really anything up until that point. And then, um, and then later on when Croker's just hanging out and one of his colleagues comes in with just a woman over his shoulder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you remember that right. part? I was like, okay, so this is what, this is what's, what's happening here. And then it was particularly strange or funny to me funny in in the odd feeling sense when um there's that little bit where he's talking about he's musing about i think the lady and he's talking about what makes a villain how do people turn out bad and he says like um considered little children there are not many of them not cute and lovable and precious sweet as whipped honey and butter so where do all the wicked people come from And literally, <laughs> his people have been creating wicked people, right? What we would call mm. wicked people who've been who suffered incredible trauma, and then mm. who knows what they're going to go on to do. And so I thought that was like a fascinating, um, that kind of uh, like a tunnel vision that Crooker has, right? And and, and I guess what you're, it, there's a suggestion that Glenn, that Glenn Cook does not necessarily have that tunnel vision, but that. Right the character and his world is very much immune to being able to see outside of that. Of that right. Right. World. And certainly at least in this first book. And that's, that's I think very deliberate choice that he's making narratively speaking. And I, I found the section you were talking about, Jason. Um, it says Whitey came charging toward where I sat with captain and silent and one or two others. 
He had a naked woman draped over his shoulder. She might have been attractive had she not been so thoroughly abused. Not bad, Whitey, not bad, I said, and went back to my journal. Behind Whitey, the whooping and screaming continued. The men were harvesting the fruits of victory. Right, which is just like blunt and honest and just awful, right? Right. And our main character's like, hey, not bad. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It reminded me most of reading, trying to read Lord Fowl's Bane the first time when Tavis Covenant, who is the main character there, is actually, he's raped somebody. And I just couldn't go on, right? I just, I had, I was like 15 and I was like, nope, I can't even reconcile this with my idea of what a fantasy book is. And so that yeah. was really interesting to read this and to be, you know, uh, to, to like encounter that and try to figure out what to do with it and how it's, yeah, if you're going to have an escapist fantasy about a mercenary troop and, and treat it realistically, which is one of the things I appreciate about this book was like a lot of the mundane details, a lot of his own experience in the military and how that plays in. I really like that really enriches the story, but there's going to be that part. And that's, and you know, on the one hand, I really appreciate that he, address that head on and the other hand it's like hard to uh, yeah it's it's hard to read yeah it's hard, hard to, to sympathize just, with yeah. you know the people mm-hmm. the, the main characters there mm-hmm. yeah and also there's there's that um there's the rivalry between goblin and one eye these two wizards who you can't quite tell if they really just hate each other or if they're <laughs> buddies who just love like really just giving each other a really hard time <laughs> but like so here we have one eye who's black and we just covered a Wizard of Earthsea two episodes ago. So now two of, two of our three last episodes, we finally have Black Wizards, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. But so when there's a moment where Goblin is taunting One-Eye and he creates like a little army of like pygmies who are like kissing the butts of these like little idols and all of the pygmies have One-Eye's face. So here's Goblin like engaging in some like very racist stereotypes as a way of like mocking one eye and then there's also a moment where one eye like i forget like somehow like with magic he spells like something like goblin is a poofter and and then um our protagonist or uh, the yeah the protagonist goes out of his way to say oh actually but just so you know goblin was not a poofter yeah, he's yeah, right. indeed a heterosexual and it's like okay good to know um, <laughs> but but also like so we have like this like kind of like casual like racism and, and and like homophobia like being thrown amongst the the characters but it also like it doesn't tell me one way or the other about how Glenn Cook feels about that. Right. It just really tells us that we're hanging out with a bunch of low-life degenerates. Yes. Right, right. 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 Yeah. And That's then true. we have a very clear example of a non-binary, I mean, soul catcher, right? It's completely mm-hmm. non-binary, mm-hmm. Um, you know, a very strange character. I mean, she's like one of the great villains, but she's also in a way sort of sympathetic because she kind of seems to understand and she has these conversations with Croker, which are actually kind of sympathetic. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And, and again, we still don't have a real take on like, you know, what does that mean? You know, you know, it's just, it's very neutral, you know, matter of fact kind of thing. And this could be, um, again, a deliberate choice, a tamping down of Croker is basically sort of completely locked down his moral sensibilities. He's just, or he just reports everything very matter of fact. Cause if he actually had to think too deeply about any of these things, mm. right. He just wouldn't, he, he, you know, or any of us did, we just go nuts, right. If we're in that situation. Right. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point about Soulcatcher, especially, I mean, she literally talks in different voices of different, you know, sometimes she's masculine, sometimes she's feminine, and and for right. the longest time he uses he him pronouns, and then he realizes he has to switch at the end. Like, that was all. I really appreciate it. I mean, in some ways, Soulcatcher is my favorite character, I would say, mm. as mysterious as she is. And one of the things that I think that's happened with Grimdark is something that happens when, um, it's something that I think can happen often when these kinds of things are portrayed without any commentary on the, um, whether or not these are 
whether or not the author has an opinion about these things one way or the other. It's kind of like how, um, like All in the Family, you know, was, <laughs> was a satire on like, you know, a racist, homophobic, misogynist dude, but was done in such like a casual way that a lot of people loved Archie Bunker and didn't yeah. realize it was satire. Yeah. Right, you know, right. so I can also see a lot of people who would read this and since it's not clear what Glenn Cook thinks about this, some people might just think that this is a celebration of a time back when men could just be men, right. you know? So it's, it, it is tricky and um, risky um, right. playing in this, in this sandbox right. without telling the, um, the audience what your, what your thoughts about this are. Yeah, and certainly in the context of this one book, for sure. For, for yeah. sure. And it's, it's only in the sort of the picture of the, whole trilogy into the later series that we sort of get an inkling of like you know again not necessarily his specific views necessarily say on like gender or race but the just the idea of like what's humanity and what's not humanity mm -hmm. you know yeah um and so it is and one of the the compelling parts near the end of the book is how kroger starts to like say wait like maybe they're Maybe it doesn't have to be, you know what I mean? Like, right. I don't want to tell my friends that I'm actually having a moral awakening. Like, like <laughs> yeah, like, which is where that whole, you know. But it's funny um, that, yeah. Even then, though, there's some people are like, hey, this guy Raven, he's not really a good dude, right? Even though they're in yeah. the, you know, they're there together. And yeah. his good dudeness is not so much, his lack of good dude is not so much that he's a killer, but that he's not being one of the, you know, he's one of the on gang. Board. Yeah, he's yeah, not, he's totally not on, on board. Yeah. yeah, he's not on board. He's not like, this is my brother you know, before everything else, you know, <laughs> but he's also not a killer in the way that like, okay, so these people are hired swords, swordsmen, yeah. but like Raven goes out of his way to murder his cheating wife. Right. And this doesn't even happen off screen. This happens on screen. Yeah. You know, so we also know that like Raven is, has a very different relationship with violence than mm -hmm. some of these other characters do. I do love that moment at the end where they confront, they catch up to him. And and Raven's like, well, okay, here they come. We get ready for a fight, darling. Like we're we're gonna we're, this we're gonna throw down right now. And then when that moment when um, Croker gives him his cut, and he's, and he's basically like, just want to make sure we're all square and everything's cool. And Raven doesn't <laughs> even know how. It's like such a great picture of toxic masculinity because Raven. I mean, what is the line? It's like, um, I thought I wrote down the page number. There's just this really great line. It's so succinct, and he just it's something like, he he like he struggled to find the thing inside, like to go within the box inside of him and find that expression of thanks, basically. Like it was so yeah. hard to like, it was like a really emotional moment and Raven was having a really hard time being able to express himself. And I thought that was just a great um, depiction of that, of that truth. Right. And it's funny, again, you mentioned that, uh, and we mentioned this briefly in the book club with uh, Rick and Adam is that um, having read more of Glenn Cook's stuff, there's frequently a Raven-like character in his other series, mm. but it is always ultimately pointed out that that person is really effing themselves by not being part of a bigger social... Oh, interesting. ...social structure, social net. Uh, they seem initially cool at first, and when we're reading these as sort of adolescents or in early 20s, yeah, Raven, he's such a badass, he's so cool. Yeah. He's a lone yeah. wolf. Yeah. Right, and then you were like, no, this guy's <laughs> like really a sorry figure, and that you know only his love for Darling has any redeeming quality whatsoever. You know, <laughs> well, it's like how every thirteen-year-old's first D and D character is the thief who steals from the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. And Raven's got a cool name, and he's got a sharp knife. Right. Here's, yeah. here's the line. Here's the line. Raven struggled with himself, trying to say thank you, unable to get through the barriers he had built around the man inside. Like, I just love that. Like, such a great little 
little moment there. There are like the writing for me was like up and down, right? There are moments of like where he amazing turns of phrase and then, and really beautiful, rich description and evocative writing. And then there are spans when like stuff doesn't really hang together for me. And then it kind of like focus hones in again on something really, really, some really, really beautiful or, or, or telling detail. Um, and that was just one of those for me. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm running a black company themed freebooters on the frontier <laughs> adventure. Jason, who are you playing in this? Which character would I play? Yeah. Which character do you want to play? When we think about what's cool about what, what gaming things would you take away from black company? I would have wizards as a combination PR marketing and um, propaganda team because (laughs) he does so much. Like remember when the first, the black ship comes into the Harbor at first and it's got the skull with the flame around it. And he says, and the guy with him says like, Oh, they must have pretty good wizards or whatever. Cause like the wizard, it's just like, it's just like their (laughs) emblem. It's like their black metal emblem. (laughs) And then general Harden's giant head appears later to like intimidate everybody. And then when um, the false white rose is put on the horse, there's like a glow around her. That right. <laughs> I can't remember which is it goblin who says like, or one eye says yes. like, like they, somebody's just, that's somebody else's right, like, right, throwing right. that glow on her. <laughs> um, so I would play, I would play one of the wizards for sure. And yeah. I, I do like the kind of, the kind of uh, chaotic antics of, of, yeah. um, of goblin and one eye kind of yeah. going at each other. Same. I would absolutely want to play one of the magic users. So I guess after Jason had picked Goblin or One-Eye, I would have picked the other one. Uh, Hoy, which one are you picking? Again, you know me, I don't normally play the magical character, but they're so much fun. So if I was playing one of the magical characters, I would have played One-Eye probably. If we were playing a Taken level game, then I would love to play Soul Catcher. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, but, then I'll play Silent so that the two of you can play One-Eye and Goblin. Yeah. But if I was playing a non-magical character, then I might have played like Elmo. You know, so <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Wait, what kind of character do you usually play? If, if I usually magic play a uh, sort of skill-based character. So a lot of times it'll be um, like a thief, a ranger. Okay. Um, Got it. But not always. I like to play halflings. But it, it, you know, it's just magic users. Sometimes just like it's a little bit more mental keeping track. It's not so much I'm an anti-magic yeah, yeah, user, but sure. just like keeping yeah. track of what the spells are that yeah. I have available yeah. and stuff like Got that. It. So Thanks. yeah, makes sense. So. Let's say we were going to do a taken uh, a taken level game. Then, which gaming system would you want to use for something like that? Mm, well, you know there is a Black Company D twenty game. Look at that, and Hoy has it. Hoy, <laughs> Hoy it has it. Amazing. <laughs> Hoy, tell us about the Black Company D twenty game. What do you know about it? Um, it's D twenty three point five era, so I probably wouldn't play it. I wasn't playing D anD D at the time, uh, and the stats blocks are ridiculous. Um, let me see if I pull up any random one here. Um, but I, I bought it primarily because, you know, I just yeah. love all the lore. So I just wanted to know if there was more interesting lore. Okay, here's the lady. 52nd level wizard and 5th level great general. She has 52 D6 hit dice plus 104 plus 5 D8 plus 10. So she has a 320 hit points. So you could play Taken in this system because they're they're all statted out. So you could totally uh, play Taken. Like they have yeah. like they some are. generic yeah. Taken and then they have like the major Taken. So Shapeshifter is statted as a 35th level wizard and 10th level ranger. Um, uh, Soul Catcher is a 35th level wizard, 10th level jack of all trades. Oh. And uh, Howler is in here, is a 35th level wizard and 5th level artificer. And the Limper is in here as well, too. I don't think they have Whisper. Let me see if they have Whisper. But the, um, other, um, the other role playing game that takes Black Company as a direct inspiration is um, 
uh, uh, Band of Blades. That's right. Uh, we were just talking about. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that game that well, but we've mentioned it was based on Blades in the Dark, right? Or sort of that's. It's the... a Forge in the Dark system, and Black Company was a major inspiration. It's much more. It's like the idea of like a le- legion, a mercenary legion, running from people pursuing them. Right. That's the whole campaign. It's like you're you're basically running away. Um, and there are figures that sort of take the place of, there are super powerful figures that you cannot play that are present that, um, are just like, are similar to the Taken actually in that. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. I've always, I've wanted to run that. I haven't run it yet. I own it, but I haven't run it yet. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea is that you play different little missions within that, that context, right? And do you play the same characters or do you sort of rotate like which characters you're playing? Like you this mission? play character, you play like, um, ground level guys on the mission and in between missions you each player takes the role of like a bigger like a quartermaster or um the person in charge of intelligence or whatever so it kind of like switches back and forth and i think that the lower level guys are more expendable so you might basically make new characters as they get killed off all right i had a Um, yeah i think i had the on the right track there jeff but uh, rick again who mentioned it because he again he had served in the british army for security he's like how would you play this game because you know role players generally are very anarchistic but in a game of theoretically military you still have to have a command structure to yeah, make it work yeah, you know right. um but it seems like they've addressed that so it'd be interesting to look at that game at some point yeah it's on my list so let's say we were doing kind of your more standard D system um what are the taken are they are they high level character are, are these liches are these pc classes mm. I mean, yeah. they're almost demigods, but like not quite. I mean, the lady feels like a demigod to me, right? Yeah. Like so powerful, like so. Um, but then the lower level taken. Yeah. I mean, Lich is a good c- comparison. I mean, we know that like they're not undead necessarily. Like, yes, they're rotting, but they also will like, you know, eat a taco. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we didn't see them eat a taco, but we saw them eat food. Yeah. I always go to taco because, like, I'm a, I, I, in the in, have you seen the cartoon The Last Unicorn? Oh no, I don't know why, but there's just a scene in The Last Unicorn where like Schmendrick the magician and the Last Unicorn are kidnapped by bandits, and then they become friends with the bandits. And at one point, the bandits are like making food and they're like, "Here, have a taco." And I don't know why, but every time they say "Here, have a taco," it just makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an adaptation of the Peter Beagle book? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And are there tacos in the original book? <laughs> I've not read the original. <laughs> that seems like such a weird. I really choice. want to though. Yeah. <laughs> wow, who doesn't love tacos? It was Taco Tuesday. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. We do see uh, Soul Catcher eating a couple times and actually even being polite and grateful when she's given some food by Croker. Right. So oh, that yeah, makes yeah, yeah, interesting. Right. And like yeah. each turns away and eats. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And was it? Didn't Nasher take a bite out of somebody's shoulder? Yeah, time? something like that. Right. He's <laughs> like at the crocodile mouth. Yeah, the giant crocodile mouth. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, discussion. yeah. So we have the answer in the game. Uh, within the context of another game, um, you'd want enough of a spread of power between a taken level character and what represents a base level human being, right? So like GURPS would not be a good fit because GURPS has a very narrow power band, right? So something like Stormbringer, I think uh, Rick Byrne mentioned. Um, I think yeah, first, I think that was a great idea. First edition AD and D, I think, would work. Uh, you know, could have the wizards be twentieth level, and most of the player characters are second or third level. Right, because there's still a second or third level character is still quantitatively better than any normal peasant, but they're nowhere right, right. near the level of what a taken is. Well, yeah. and even the, like the most powerful wizards who are in the Black Company, 
like yeah, whatever. I forget the name of that spell, the illusion spell, where like the illusions are real and can actually do things. Like phantasmal force or something like that. Phantasmal force, like whatever level spell that is, like that's the highest level spell. Mm -hmm. Like that level Mm -hmm. of wizard can cast. And for the members of the Black Company and like the other mooks and the other armies, like that is big deal magic. But to the taken, like that's just kind of a big joke to me. Right, it's not sphere of annihilation or something like that. Exactly. It really is a completely different level of magic. But it gets me thinking about how, like, when you look at, like, the uh, amount of destruction a 17th level AD&D wizard could do (laughs) just on a daily basis, like, it's it's shocking, like, the kinds of, like, like world-destroying things they could just constantly be up to. Uh And this almost seems to kind of lean into that, which I kind of dig. Like if people did have these powers, this right. is the kind of shit that would go down as a yeah. result of it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you also make an interesting point. I was just thinking about the, the magic system is that it still requires preparation. They're like silent. There's a couple of times like, oh, I didn't, I, you know, had this one spell ready and then I'm not ready. Or if you just keep on overwhelming the taken with just like too many things that are dividing their attention. Mm-hmm. Right. They and they really can't, they have a hard time yeah. responding to it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and similar to a Wizard of Earthsea, we have true name magic. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that becomes a component there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I have no doubt in my mind is going to be an even bigger deal as the books progress, because now that we know that the Limper is still alive, yeah. and we know that uh, Croker... Um, is it Croker? That's the main guy, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, okay, I, I don't know why I keep feeling like I'm saying the wrong name. Um, and we now know that Croker knows the limper's true name and the lady doesn't know that croaker knows that so i'm sure that's building up for some major conflict down the road yeah it's totally a season one closing episode to have that information out there and yeah i was also as far as the magic stuff goes like i was and knowing about glenn cook's background and military connections and stuff like thinking about the flying carpets as like aircraft and the magic as like you know heavy artillery Mm -hmm. and and so that was, it was interesting to think about the real world, his real world background and context, like what you were saying, post-Vietnam and whatnot. And then, of course, he must have talked to a lot of people. Who, if he didn't see action, he must have been friends with people who did. And how there's the propaganda parts part of it. There's the hearts and minds part. And then mm-hmm. there's the um, intimidation part where it's not, it's just about breaking morale. And then that crazy assault on the the tower, which just like, is just an absolutely brutal um, you know, battle of the Somme level, charging the barricade, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting to see all that and how the magic takes that in some ways takes on that role of of the the big guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and you mentioned also this uh, counterinsurgency, which also becomes in you know a big feature in the the following books too. So again, as you say, hearts and minds, and then just that dirty war with all the civilians sort of caught in between and like trying to placate both sides because we it's made very clear to us that the rebels are not nice right right yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, very clear yeah so jason is there anything that while you're reading this you're like oh i want to steal this this will be a fun thing to include in a future game um i mean i love so the wizards as i already mentioned the way that wizards are deployed as not just spellcasters but they have this other these other roles within the um you know their promote like promotions team like make (laughs) make you look cool the wizards can make you look cool (laughs) <laughs> um, I am a big fan ever since Invincible City State of the Overlord or City State of the Invincible Overlord, big fan of fantasy metropolises and like, yeah, um, how rich and crazy they can feel in the hands of a good writer. And Nessus in um, Shadow of the Torture is a great example of that. And here at the very at the beginning, at least when we get there's not a whole lot of 
detail about the cities later on in this particular book but in the beginning we get right, some barrel like, yeah barrel yeah. and i love those just like little moment little glimpses these really colorful little glimpses that are super um exciting i love that and then i think again this comes from probably his military background i love fantasy games when i run them to have moments that are ground them in realism so that the fantastical stuff feels all the more fantastical if there's something really grounded and this book is full of those moments like people going to the bathroom right like oh we're gonna we're gonna go kill somebody we better we better take a leak first because you're not gonna want to have to have a full bladder when you're in the middle yeah. of this or um there's a point where croker is like going number two <laughs> right he's actually like taking a dump in like the trench at oh the that's tower, right and the captain comes over to him and he's like i was not in the best you know position <laughs> when i got the game over um and then i love the moment where um it's just a tiny little thing but he describes running really fast and his backpack hammering his kidneys <laughs> as he ran i just like you don't think about that when like adventurers are running around with their backpacks on but like absolutely i love that kind of detail so those kinds of Same. little things i really I, that's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff i would take with me yeah and there's a thing where he said something like uh, man was not meant to hike for days with 60 pounds of gear on their back um, that was another great moment like that. The thing that I wanted to steal is also kind of in that vein. I loved that moment when we are first introduced to Soulcatcher in real life, uh, um, that where the characters actually meet Soulcatcher. And there's that horrific blizzard that's going on. And they can't get the gates open because there's just so much snowdrift. So Soulcatcher just ends up walking up the snowdrift and over the wall. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that moment was just like, it was so like, I, I could picture it. And it's also just a great way of just like illustrating just the sheer absurdity of how crazy this blizzard is. Yeah. And also right. like you can tell that this moments like that when Glenn Cook is in the story and he's thinking, yeah. okay, crazy snow, they can't open the gate. What happens next? Oh, well, she just walks over the, you know, like yeah. I love it when a writer, when you can tell they're not just like, and the gate's open and we move on to the next part of the story. There's an opportunity there to show something strange and weird and, and a little odd, but yet believable. And that right. to me, that really yeah. like, that kicks it up a notch that takes it from the five to the six. (laughs) And the other thing that I'm already stealing, but I'm just really glad to see it again, illustrated is wizards with magical healing. (laughs) No clerics. (laughs) Wizards can cast cure light wounds. Damn it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I love the, uh, the initial hunt for the, not the initial, but the, when they're hunting the four Valaka in the, the paper tower. And that's clearly a dungeon crawl, right? They're coming in, they're trying to keep oh, yeah. their formation. Yeah. And they're just like trying to shut doors to make sure that they're just like, it's just funneled in one direction. And it's just out of their sight, just out of their line of sight. They can hear it. And yeah. They can see it. And so. And some people are like, oh, we need to fight it with silver weapons. And other <laughs> people are like, that's Tom, stupid. That's <laughs> yeah. just old superstition. Yeah, Tom, Tom and one eye, like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but like, while you're in that world, you don't actually know. Like, is that <laughs> true? Is that not true? Like, and that to me felt very much like a DCC adventure. Like, yeah. that would be one of, one of the rumors that like you can randomly generate is that the monster can only be killed by silver. Yeah. And only the, the, the DM knows if that's true or not. Yeah. I mean, this is... Um, and, and, you know, we get those little hints and pushes. Like, he, he does a lot of world building, but then he also just takes away all of it that's not relevant to the story, right? Which is, yeah. like, great. Because you know that he has a full idea of this world, but he's not also, like, hitting you over the head with it. You know, yeah. At the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we are just about out of time. Jason, do you have any final thoughts about the Black Company that you wanted to share with us? Um, I think the only, like, uh, sort of related to the gaming thing, I think I would avoid the thing he does where he... I appreciate what he does with language where he's like naming cities just after things. 
because that's how cities in the real world work, right? But we usually are used to hearing the names of foreign cities, and there's the classic fantasy naming problem where it all just sounds like gobbledygook. Um, but like, I got confused with the numbers of names. You know, there's a person named Whisper and a person named Journey and a person named Feather, but there's a city named Roses and a city named Lords, and there were just many, many, many proper nouns that were just single words that got to be. And that could again could be a great corollary to what it feels like to be a grunt on the front lines, right? It's just like meaningless names of places. Yeah. So in my own in my own stuff, I would put more effort into like really helping things feel distinct that way. Um that was just like the only other standout thing that that occurred to me in the course right. of, of I think you're things. absolutely right that that's a deliberate choice though. That you we're just passing through these places and that's not relevant to the mission to the notice because um again, I keep on foreshadowing, but in the later series when they move back to the southern continent, he, when they're staying someplace longer, it gets more descriptive and then when oh, they're cool. passing through, it's just right. like okay, you know. Um so yeah because that's my favorite parts are you we get these you know when he focuses in on limper and we get this description of what limper really looks like i was like whoa yes it's in my head now you know what yeah. i mean so that's great to know that he does more of that later on yeah. perfect and jason uh do you have any projects you're working on that you would like folks to know about sure um i am publishing a game called stone top which we ran a kickstarter for that closed in march but it's still open for pre-order and you can find that on kickstarter under just kickstarter um you know just look for stone top on on kickstarter that's written by my friend jeremy strandberg and that is slated to come out in april 2022 so you can still pre-order that um and the second edition of my game free Birders on the frontier will be kickstarting later in the year after this stone top game comes out and i know it's done then i'll i'll kickstart um freebooters and then most of my stuff is uh my current stuff is available on drive through rpg under my publisher name which is lamp black and brimstone cool and do you or your publishing company have a social media presence no <laughs> <laughs> very good idea no yeah no i've i've yeah i did for a while but then i yeah needed to stay sane so same yeah. i've been i've been off the social media since last december although oh, i still man. i still manage the appendix and book club's twitter account but that's Jeff Goad isn't yeah. on anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on some discords, you know, that's where I get my community hits. Um, right. But yeah. yeah, I'm not on any of the other things at all. Cool. Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. If you want, want to drop us a note, you can do that at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to do a couple of things. One, they're able to join us before our episodes and chat with us about the books we're covering. And today we did have two of our patrons join us for that. We had Rick Byrne and Adam Stiers hang out and chat with us about the Black Company. And that was a lot of fun. Rick Byrne, by the way, being the person who has made our uh, most recent logo, which we absolutely adore. Thank you, Rick. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our, to a few of our other patrons to Richard Reed, Andy Action, Robbie Fioto, Dan Alexander, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, William Souter, Daniel Bishop, Darren Demez, Trevor Stamper, and Eric Hicks. Thank you, thank you so much for your support. Our patrons are also able to vote on which books we are going to be covering. Our poll for episode 117 just closed. And the winner of that poll was Clark Ashton Smith's The End of the Story, which is the first of the Nightshade Press collections. And 
when this episode drops, our patrons are going to be able to vote on what we're covering for episode 121. And the books that are going to be up for vote for that one are on the theme of Afrofuturism. And the first one is going to be Nanidi Okorafor's Lagoon. The second one is N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season. Our other one will be Samuel R. Delaney's Dahlgren. And the fourth one is Nalo Hopkinson's Brown Girl in the Ring. So we've got some cool stuff that we might be covering. Well, we will be covering one of them in episode 121. And if you want to go and show us some support, um, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Show us some support and vote on what we're covering. And that's all I have to say about the Patreon. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show today. You've been an awesome guest. Oh, thank you both so much. I'm such a huge fan. Um, keep on keep on podcasting because I will not stop listening. Jason, it's <laughs> such a treat. I do, would never have imagined, like, you know, when I was reading Jar Fools back in the day that we'd actually ever be talking. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Same here. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed! <laughs>